From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This is our year in review show. Remember 2017? Remember how Trump was sworn in on January 20th? And it's been a year of resistance ever since. John Nichols will be here with his progressive honor roll, honoring the people who've done the most to fight Trump in Trumpism. Also, the most remarkable political year was Alabama's. It began with the state's senator, Jeff Sessions, becoming attorney general and ended with a Democrat, Doug Jones, winning the election for Jeff Sessions' seat, the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama since 1990, 27 years ago. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Howell Raines. But first, for our year in review of the hashtag Me Too movement, we turn, of course, to Katha Pollitt. And of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Just to go back over where we have been in 2017, Fox News fired Bill O'Reilly for sexual harassment in April. The Harvey Weinstein story ran in the New York Times at the beginning of October. The Me Too hashtag appeared early in October. Me Too started with Tarana Burke and was popularized by Alyssa Milano. The story about Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore taking a 14-year-old girl to his mountain cabin ran on November 9th, and then Al Franken resigned on December 7th. How did we get from Bill O'Reilly and Harvey Weinstein and Roy Moore to Al Franken? Life comes at you fast, John. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite amazing, isn't it? The whole... Me Too movement has really exploded. Um, And I think that, you know, we have to chalk it up to the rage that women feel over the pussy grabber in the White House. Yes. Um, It's just outrageous. Um, Every day uh, you have to listen to this misogynist nutcase utterly unqualified, who does one terrible thing after another with regard to women's rights and health, um, not to mention all the other things he's doing. And, you know, the most qualified candidate in American history was a woman and is not in the White House. And I, I really think that whether or not, like, a woman herself was for Hillary, that is a really deep insult And I think that it woke a lot of women up to, you know, we're always being told we've come so far, you've come a long way, baby. Things are so much better. Think how bad things are in Saudi Arabia. Think what it was like when you're in your grandmother's day. And people, I think, realize, women are realizing, well, things aren't so great. You know, yeah, it's better than Saudi Arabia. It's better than 50 years ago, but it's not good enough. I think you're absolutely right. If you if we ask why did all this happen this year, it's because of Trump. But the the targets and this is where it starts getting uh, complicated ended up 
taking down Al Franken, the probably the single most important person to lose his position as a result of accusations of sexual misconduct. And I'm sure you agree that the accusations against him were nothing like the accusations against Bill O'Reilly or Harvey Weinstein or Roy Moore. I do think they were much milder, although I'm not supposed to say that, um, because uh, one of the things that people are saying now is that you can't, you can't quantify, you can't qualify, you can't rank sexual harassment. But I think kind of you have to do that. Just the way that you can say, yeah, stealing $100, embezzling $100 is embezzlement, but it's a different kind of thing than embezzling $100,000. so um, I guess, you know, I, I don't agree with some of the people who've been saying that it's all on a level. I think there are ways in which it's all on a level. It's all part of the same, what's been called rape culture. It's all part of the idea that women's bodies are, you know, just a nice big juicy steak for men and that women can be demeaned at any moment. But I do think that a photo op butt grabbing is a different thing than Harvey Weinstein saying to Selma Hayek, I could have you killed and yes. mean it. Yes. <laughs> um, so that said, you know, a lot of people do feel that Al Franken was kind of hustled off the stage too quickly. And I'm of two minds about that. He was hustled off the stage rather quif- quickly, but I think it's politics. You know, it's not like he was uh, a tenured professor who would have to go through, you know, there would have to be a million uh, meetings and hearings and testimony. He's He's an elected official. He lost the confidence of his fellow Democrats. They didn't want anything to do with him. And he was kind of, you know, didn't really have much of an alternative. There is the Senate Ethics Committee. They could hold hearings. They could take testimony from his accusers. They could have his uh, response to his accusers. Wouldn't that be a kind of uh, due process? Well, I suppose in a way it would be, but here's how it would go. Al Franken groped my butt at a photo op. Hmm. I'm not sure I remember it that quite like that. I mean, there is no evidence. There's her the, the word of how, six women, however many it is. And then there's then there's him. And so then what would the ethics committee say? Well, they all say you did this. So I, I don't think there's a lot of fact-finding to be done. But anyway, if that's what he wanted, he should have said, I'm not resigning. I want to go before, uh, to, to have there be a real investigation. And um, I know you Democrats are all mad at me and want me to go away so that you can be the party that is tough on sexual harassment and make the Republicans be the party that is not, but I'm not going. He could have said that. Fair enough. So why didn't he? Fair enough. And the other thing we're interested in when we talk about where Me Too has been for the last year and where it might be going, it has remained pretty much focused on the elites of the media, uh, of politics, uh, of journalism, and of course, We believe that most of the victims, the overwhelming number of victims of sexual harassment are in working class jobs. They work in restaurants or they work in sweatshops and 
their bosses are probably not as grotesque as Roy Moore or Harvey Weinstein, but their bosses either demand sex for hiring or for promotions or treat them uh, badly if they don't cooperate. And we know very little about this. And in fact, the New York Times on December 19th kind of opened the door to this with a story about the culture of harassment at a Ford, at Ford factories uh, in Chicago. I think you looked at this piece. I did. It was an amazing piece of journalism. And if you read it on the web, it has uh, little videos of some of the women talking about what happened to them that are very affecting. Um, and so, but what was, in, was among the things that was interesting to me is that these are very, very good working class jobs working in the Ford factory. Yeah. They have a very strong union, one of the few strong unions remaining in our our sad country. Um, and they have a lot of things in place that should have made a difference and did not. Um, the union played a very ambiguous role. And, you know, in my piece, I, I mention unions as part of a, you know, a way of dealing with sexual harassment. But, you know, the union guy can just be another sexual harasser. Um, the union guy can take the side of the men. Um, and think, why should why should this guy who's been here for 20 years be fired because, you know, he made some off-color remark to a woman who, you know, he might, he, the union guy, might not feel so keen about anyway, having and, women in this men's job. And union reps see their job, the job that they do is defending union members from being fired. Well, that's it. So there's a kind of... Um, uh, a conflict of interest a little bit built into it. Yeah. Um, and then behind it, I thought was also very interesting was the fear that everybody had that Ford would just close the factory. They'd say, you know, well, we've had it with you people and your gropings and your bringing lawsuits and all like that. Well, this is it. And that, you know, that, that the, the manufacturing is so endangered that, that people, I think, are, are, don't want to provoke their boss. At least that's what this article said. So um, it was a wonderful article. And, it, you know, there have been some others, too. There has been, you know, the restaurant business, for yeah. example, has been a big, a, a big locus of sexual harassment. And the whole tipping culture is part of that. Um, and then hotels. That was, it was very interesting. I saw something that said that 49% of women who who are the housekeepers, the, the women who clean the rooms, have been greeted at the door by a naked man. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Here's the thing. I mean, who knew that, you know, regular normal men, not some guy in the park in a raincoat, regular normal oh, men, man. as normal as men can be, <laughs> apparently, um, enjoy flashing their penises at women. I mean, it's just, it's been such an education, the whole Me Too moment. And, and it, really, it really makes you wonder what people are like behind their, their formal mask of everyday business life. Well, how about more women in executive and managerial positions? The Nation has a woman as editor and publisher, Katrina Vanden Heuvel. The Nation Institute has a woman CEO, Taya Kitman. These are both places where women are not harassed at work. Right. Um, and uh, the Nation Institute got Taya after having to let a sexual, sexual harasser go. Hamilton Fish, who then went on and got another job where he sexually harassed people at the New Republic. 
So I, th- I definitely am in favor of more women in positions of power. This is a kind of controversial thing to say, because then you sound like you're just a sort of businessy feminist. You're for lean in, you know, you're not a good communist, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, uh, and, and somehow socialism is to kind of magically make this all go away, which is ridiculous. Just go to a socialist country. There's plenty of sexual harassment there. But I think that it's essential that women, if women have half the power, half the social power in this country, it will be a very different place. Right now, they only have about 10% of the social power. Katha Pollitt, you could read her piece on the hashtag MeToo year in review at thenation.com. Katha, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, one more thing, my holiday donations column uh, is, is, is up on the website now. And there's one of the many wonderful causes that I'd like to call your attention to because it has a time limit. And that is supporting the Edward Said Public Library in Gaza, which is an English language library t- started by two uh, English language teachers and uh, college grads because there are very few books in Gaza and there are a lot of readers and there are a lot of readers who speak who uh, want to read books in English. So there's an Indiegogo that you can find online, um, in, you know, in my column, and it 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 only lasts for a month, less than a month by the time by the time you're hearing this. Um, so I would really urge everybody to go make a little donation and or a big donation that would be even better. Uh, <laughs> We're trying to raise operating funds for a whole year, which is $15,000. So thank you in advance for doing that, dear Nation listeners. Katha Pollitt, reader at thenation.com. Our year in review continues as we turn to the resistance John Nichols has been covering that. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. You can read his progressive honor roll for 2017 in the new issue of The Nation magazine. John, welcome back. The top of your progressive honor roll is most valuable senator. Tell us about that. Well, it's Elizabeth Warren, and there's a reason for that. To be a U.S. senator in this moment uh, puts tremendous requirements on someone. It's easy to be someone who resists and simply says no, and that's very valuable. It's not to be diminished at all, but it's very, very hard, uh, especially in these times, to at one moment resist and at the next moment push things forward to try and really scope out uh, a vision for where we're headed next. And Warren did that with tremendous agility this year. If you take a look at, at what the senator from Massachusetts did it's probably best to understand it in the context of something that uh, Steve Bannon said. In February, Bannon said that the purpose of the Trump administration would be the deconstruction of the administrative state, i.e. they wanted to take apart the infrastructure of government, really, and to undermine the regulatory state, the oversight, all the things that government does, uh, having built up since the, the New Deal era. And Warren recognized immediately the danger in that. And so when Trump cabinet picks came before the committee she was on, her questioning was, was just laser sharp. She went right to the heart of the matter of how they were going to run these agencies. She got a lot on the record, and she was actually so good at it that she was central in an effort, along with uh, America's trade union movement, to 
prevent one of Trump's worst cabinet picks from getting the job. And that's Andy Puzder, who was the nominee to be uh, Secretary of Labor. And so she was very effective in saying no. Obviously, she was also very effective, intriguingly enough, in saying yes. Uh, she succeeded in getting a number of amendments to the De- defense appropriations uh, legislation, one of which says that we have to actually account for the people that we kill as a country in all of our dozens of military missions around the world. It's one of the first times that we actually got that specifically in the language of uh, what's effectively the Pentagon budget. And there's a host of other uh, measures that she got in for accountability for military contractors, for sexual harassment issues or for harassment and abuse issues in general, workplace issues. And so she was very, very effective as a senator in actually accomplishing some things. Finally, she really has been dogged in making sure that the Democratic Party itself is held to account. Warren was critical, along with Bernie Sanders, who also is mentioned in the list, uh, in getting single-payer back on the, on the agenda of the party in a real way. Um, it's Bernie Sanders' bill, and he gets highest marks for that. But Warren really signaled that this was going to be something that uh, progressive Democrats all had to be on. And uh, also in getting anti-monopoly initiatives to be a major part of what the Democratic Party focuses on. Finally, the last reason she's on the list is is probably the one that people know best, and that is that when she was fighting the Jeff Sessions nomination uh, to be attorney general, Elizabeth Warren went to the floor of the Senate and read from a letter from uh, Coretta Scott King opposing the nomination of Jeff Sessions for a judicial post back in the 1980s. And uh, most people will remember that Mitch McConnell raced to the floor of the Senate to shut her down, to stop her from doing that. And he had the famous phrase, nevertheless, she persisted. Yes. And that launched a beam. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I, I, would, I would challenge you to think of, of something that was a more iconic slogan of the resistance than Never, nevertheless, she persisted. It became something much more than just a reference to Elizabeth Warren. It was the notion that women are playing an, the absolutely critical role in this resistance. And so when you put it all together, uh, she was the one who came out on top. So Elizabeth Warren at the top of the list as a senator, another wonderful woman on your, I was very happy to see on your list is much lower down on the power, totem pole of power, most valuable mayor. Tell us about that one. Yes, this is the mayor of uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, who I, I can, I will guarantee you that no one, or I shouldn't say no one, almost no one could have named the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico before the horrible, horrible uh, storms that came through, uh, the hurricanes that came through the Caribbean earlier this year. And the interesting thing, or one of the things that we point out in the, in the piece, is that uh, Puerto Rico doesn't have elected representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Neither, does, uh, the, neither do the Virgin Islands. They don't have senators. They don't have members of Congress. They're not allowed to vote for president. They have non-voting representatives. But um, and, and to, to make a core point on that, because of that lack of representation, which is simply one of the worst manifestations of, of uh, really a colonial attitude toward those, those island uh, regions which are, which are part of the United States, um, they had a very hard time getting their voice heard. It was, who do you turn to? Who do you listen to uh, to tell whether the government is doing a decent job of responding to the horrible crisis that befell Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And Carmen Yulin Cruz, who is the uh, 
mayor of San Juan, really stepped up and just did a remarkable job of, you know, just keeping her voice in the news, keeping herself heard, raising the objections, taking on the president of the United States when necessary, uh, cutting through the, the lies that suggested that we were doing an adequate job of response to this horrible hurricane that had hit, again, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And, and I just think that, you know, it's a remarkable effort by a mayor um, to make sure that, that not just her city, but really um, the Commonwealth and, you know, all of these islands were not forgotten. Also important to the resistance in 2017, the most valuable union. This one was a big surprise to me. Yeah, it's the American Postal Workers Union. And the reason that the Postal Workers Union uh, comes into play here is it's coupled. Number one, it's really under assault. Here's a federal union in Donald Trump's uh, federal government, a government that is very unfriendly to unions, despite Trump's blather. Um, and you know, what they did, uh, what they've done on a, on a host of, of levels is, is very impressive. They're a militant union. They're absolutely determined to stand up and fight against privatization, against uh, you know, the cutting of services. They've got all sorts of forward-looking vision and, and approaches on the issues that affect them. But why they're on the list is something else altogether. Remember, post offices are everywhere. They're all over America. Uh, the postal workers are multiracial, multiethnic, uh, small town, big city. And when the Charlottesville uh, violence occurred, when the Nazis and the neo-Confederates went to Charlottesville and uh, ultimately unleashed violence so horrific that it led to the death of Heather Heyer uh, and, you know, it just traumatized not just the city, but the nation. A lot of people responded to it and responded, you know, well, but it was remarkable what the postal workers did. They sent a message out and that message was out, you know, done by their, their leadership, not just to, um, you know, their members in Charlottesville or in, in you know, the, in Virginia, but nationwide. And they delivered a core kind of old school union message that said, you need to understand no one, no group is more harmful to unions than Nazis and fascists. They always break unions. They always undermine our solidarity. They weaken our ability to defend our own jobs and to defend the services we provide. And so they actually had a thing in their, uh, in their message from their president, which was, um, why does this matter? Why does Charlottesville matter to the American Postal Workers Union? Or how does it matter? It, and they basically said it matters in everything. Hmm. Everything that we're about is affected by this racist, fascist violence. And it was really a case of a union stepping up in an incredible way. So the most valuable union to the resistance, the American Postal Workers Union. Last but not least, the most valuable national protest. Here, there's not really much of a debate, is there? No, there wasn't any debate at all. It's almost too easy, but it, but it had to be noted because in some ways we do this annual list at the nation because we want to you know, put down the historical imprint. We want to deliver the message that what we're talking about is certainly to be remembered and noted for this year. Yes. But hopefully as people go back in the archives, they will remember that the Women's March on Washington was an absolutely transformational uh, march. And, and that word transformational, I, I underline it and circle it, because December 20th, or I'm sorry, January 20th, 2017, January 20th, 2017, was a horrible day. Donald Trump got up and he gave a worse 
inauguration speech that anybody expected. He was talking about American carnage. Um, it was very unsettling and, and, and really very troubling. And, you know, Trump was putting his imprint on the country. And then the next morning, the Women's March, not just in Washington, but from Maine to California, from Florida to Alaska, out in Hawaii, nationwide, uh, the Women's March said, no way, we're not letting you put that imprint on this country. And it was such a powerful response that, that I invite people to remember, to this day, Donald Trump is whining about crowd sizes. John Nichols on The Resistance in 2017. You can read his progressive honor roll for 2017 in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, John. Thank you. It's great to be with you, John. The most remarkable political year was Alabama's. It began with the state senator Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general, and it ended with a Democrat, Doug Jones, winning the election for Jeff Sessions' seat, the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama since 1990, 27 years ago. For comment, we turn once again to Howell Raines. He's the legendary Alabama journalist and former executive editor of the New York Times. He also wrote an unforgettable oral history of the civil rights movement. It's called My Soul is Rested. Howell Raines, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, the political year in Alabama began, you will recall, long before Roy Moore was in the headlines, when Senator Jeff Sessions was sworn in as attorney general after Trump was inaugurated on January 20th. Jeff Sessions had been the first senator to endorse Trump for a long time. He was the only one. And he was regarded by people like me as a kind of an outlier, even in the Republican Party, kind of a irrelevant in the Senate. Is that fair? Who was Jeff Sessions before he became attorney general? Yes, that, that is fair. Jeff Sessions is a classic Alabama senator in the sense that he does nothing. And that is what is wanted by his constituency. And it's a, it's a peculiar kind of political vacuum. In the New Deal, Alabama senators John Sparkman and Lister Hill were very active in drafting health care and social welfare legislation, including the Hill-Burton Act that built rural hospitals nationwide. They were activists on everything except race, and they simply tried to ignore civil rights to the degree possible. But their legislative careers were distinguished. The National Defense Education Act, for example, was one of their creations, and it has funded, provided federal funds to uh, universities all over the country for the last uh, 50 years. Yeah. With the rise of uh, Reagan, really, in 1980, Reagan's victory solidified the foundation that Barry Goldwater had put down in 1964, when five Alabama congressmen rode his coattails to, to the U.S. House. So Sessions comes along in that tradition of being innocuous and uh, saying the right thing ceremonially, making sure that Alabama gets its fair share or more than its fair share of federal uh, spending on military bases and such, but a very innocuous figure and 
almost comical uh, in some ways. But he was, by all accounts, posters say, the most popular statewide figure in the uh, in Alabama, most popular politician in Alabama. He did a signal service to Trump in 2016 when Trump was uh, just uh, one of the pack. He told Trump, "Come down here, and uh, I'll I'll help you in the primary, which he carried, and then come to Mobile." and we will have a very splashy public event. And that was that event that really launched Trump to the front of the very crowded Republican field. A lot of people were surprised when Sessions took the AG's job because, I mean, he's senator, he was senator for life, and he had been Alabama attorney general earlier in his career, so I suppose it was irresistible for him. And also he wanted to reverse Justice Department policy on a wide range of issues, particularly bringing in harsher penalties for drug offenses and rolling back the Justice Department Civil Rights Division uh, and its uh, enforcement of uh, voting uh, rights legislation. So he was a radical, intended to be a radical, retrogressive attorney general. And of course, then when he got crossways with Trump, that was an astonishing event in that he actually did the right thing uh, <laughs> yes. by recusing himself from yeah. the Russia investigation. Since then, Trump has just pummeling him constantly, and yet he remains very popular in Alabama. And I think it's possible he may uh, run for the Senate again down here. So Jeff Sessions becomes attorney general. The governor appoints a replacement man named Luther Strange, soon to be forgotten. Um, yeah. Special election was called. And then in April of 2017, Roy Moore, who had been suspended from the Alabama Supreme Court since September, the previous September, said he would resign as chief justice in order to run for this Senate seat, which had been vacated by Jeff Sessions and now had Luther Strange as the incumbent. Trump endorsed Luther Strange. Who was Roy Moore at that point before the sex uh, charges came out? And what did you make of Trump endorsing Luther Strange instead of Roy Moore? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a convoluted tale. Again, a uniquely Alabamian in the clumsiness of its plotting. <laughs> and let's go back uh, to uh, Luther Strange for a moment. Luther Strange was the attorney general who canceled an investigation into the LoveGov, which is the name that was hung on <laughs> Governor Robert Bentley. He and a fellow member of a, his Baptist Church Board of Deacons, a woman, had a flagrant affair, and then uh, he got caught uh, misusing state funds. It was generally thought he was headed for prison, Luther Strange, as Attorney General, pulled the plug on the investigation, and miraculously, a few months later, Luther Strange is appointed to this vacancy by the uh, unprosecuted Governor Bentley. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, even for Alabamians, uh, that was uh, too much to, to swallow. One of the interesting features of post-Wallace Alabama is now that the Republicans have taken over Montgomery and they control the legislature and the governor's seat, 
they have proved to be even more adept at stealing and other forms of corruption than the Wallace crew was. Hmm. And so uh, the Speaker of the House, who's a Republican, that was recently convicted of uh, uh, on corruption charges. But the Alabama establishment, particularly Alabama Power Company, our leading utility, and the Birmingham Bar Association and the trial lawyers wanted very badly for Luther Strange to be the senator. And their reasoning was, of course, that he would, one, do nothing to harm them, and two, he would have time between his appointment and the election that we just had for people to forget how he got the the job. Yeah. But as Alabama senior senator Richard Shelby, who I interviewed last week, said, that appointment uh, was tainted from the start. That left an opening for Roy Moore as a kind of folk hero candidate who does a a kind of Ronald Reagan cowboy imitation to overturn the, uh, the wishes of the Republican establishment. So in that sense, it was uh, it was a comeuppance election uh, in which the populist Republicans defeated the candidate of the elite uh, Republicans, and and obviously that set the stage for Roy Moore and Doug Jones' Senate race. Another element of the Luther Strange story that redounded to Moore's benefit was that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump both publicly endorsed Luther Strange yeah. and gave him tremendous amounts of money. That, uh, Mitch McConnell's political apparatus did. And when Trump found out how bad a candidate he was, he was furious. And it, again, a richly comical scene. He visits Huntsville, Alabama to endorse Big Luther Strange, which he did. And then he inserted into his speech, maybe I'm backing the wrong guy. Oh, man. <laughs> It was a Trumpian aside of of a of a familiar sort, but anyway, uh, Big Luther's was a terrible candidate. He's an innocuous, ambling sort of guy, six feet eight inches tall. He lives in the wealthiest suburb in Alabama, and the NRA put him in a series of very unconvincing ads, TV commercials showing him waving a pistol, and in one ad, putting a silencer on his pistol as if he's going to zap somebody in the dead of night without making a sound and it was uh, totally uh, unconvincing so in any event roy roy moore becomes a candidate and in the election that uh, we just had doug moore did a remarkable job of organizing alabama i think it's the best campaign in my lifetime probably in alabama and that's not accepting george wallace who had the this kind of uh, rocket fuel of the race issue. There was no such issue in this campaign to help Doug Moore. He put together a beautiful nuts and bolts and high-tech and broadcast campaign. All the parts fit together seamlessly. And the Republicans in the state, of course, were shaken by the pedophile accusations lodged against Moore. And I think the Republican establishment in the state was queasy all along about more winning. And, of course, then we had the dramatic intervention of Senator Richard Shelby on December 10th, two days before the election, in which he said he would not personally vote for Roy Moore. 
So looking back uh, now, it's a couple of weeks after Doug Jones defeated Roy Moore. What are people in Alabama thinking? What What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking two things. First, let's talk about what Alabama Republicans are thinking. Yeah, They are thinking this is an aberration and that when Doug Jones is up for re-election in 2020, they will reclaim that seat with a more civilized kind of candidate uh, than Roy Moore was. Uh, Moore is is finished uh, from the standpoint of support in the Republican Party. I think they may be counting their chickens way too early because Moore, I mean, I'm sorry, Doug Jones has proved to be a very adept campaigner, and he found a demographic seam in the Alabama population in which suburbanites are gradually becoming more and more prominent in Alabama elections. And while they're mainly Republican, nonetheless, that is a progressive segment of the Republican Party. And remember that in Houston and Atlanta, for example, the suburbs were the drivers of a more dynamic, progressive kind of government. Yeah. That, I think, is what we may see uh, in Birmingham. That said... Jones will have to, I think, do a better job of getting white votes. He is 620,000 votes, uh, 56% were black. He had a better turnout than Obama, which is a tribute to really wonderful ground-level uh, organization. But he also got 275,000 white votes. And Republicans right now don't seem to understand that that is a formula that could dictate future elections in Alabama getting the educated suburbs and a newly energized uh, black vote. Howell Reigns, the legendary Alabama newsman. It's been wonderful having you as our man in Alabama for the podcast. Thanks for doing our Alabama Politics Year in Review. Thanks, John. It's been a great year, and I've really enjoyed talking with you about it. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics, or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement. 
Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.